programming has been made possible in part by the generous support of BITS, Blind Information Technology Specialists. An affiliate of the American Council of the Blind, BITS provides career development for computer professionals. For over 50 years, BITS has been on the forefront of industry, promoting and advocating on information access and technology that improves the quality of life for people who are blind and visually impaired. Learn more about BITS programs and how to become a member by visiting their website at www.bits-acb.org. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good evening and welcome to Tuesday Topics. It is so good to be back. Did you guys miss me? We had the uh, FCB auction last Tuesday. So this time we, uh, we are off and running with what I think is going to be an, an intriguing version of Tuesday Topics. We've got two guests who happen to be my co-producers, Messrs. Larry and Rick. And we're going to talk a little bit about them. And then later on, I thought it might be fun uh, to talk a little bit about uh, what folks think, uh, that is you in the audience, about ACB Radio and what in particular you might like to see changed, uh, maybe some new ideas for ACB Radio to think about. So as you're sitting there, listen to listening to the glories of uh, Rick and Larry, um, think about perhaps uh, putting together some ideas for the future of ACB radio. After all, it, it really is your radio station. It, it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to you, and it ought to be doing what you want it to do. So we look forward to hearing some more from you uh, about that so that you can help us think through some ways that ACB Radio might get better. So let's start with Mr. Rick. Mr. Rick, Mr. Rick welcome. Hey, Paul. Thank you. Paul, go to Larry first because uh, I'll tell you why later. I'm hearing the same thing you are. Thanks. Ms. Yep. Mr. Mr. Larry, um, you were you were born with the with the same visual disorder that I have, I think, which at one point was called RLF and then later be, became the retinopathy of prematurity. Is that right? I pride myself on being able to say retrolentral fibroplasia. So when you give me the chance, me I have to say it. And yeah, yes, correct. I was. John as well. And we were two and a half months premature. He was one pound, uh, one pound eight ounces. I think I was one pound ten. And we were very small. So, I yes. Know one, I, I know of one other set of twins um, who were both born with RLF. Um, and they were interesting because one of them ended up a partial and the other was a total. Oh. And, all, and also had CP. Oh, my. Okay. But, but they were, they, they were an, an interesting couple of folks. And, in fact, they, they now are working for the same place they work for the national park service one as a as as the sort of park historian for that area and and the other is as kind of a sort of a ranger type guy so oh. um they're um they're interesting wait that's 
in in deepest of West Florida. But they're they're fun guys. They grew up in Georgia and uh, moved to Florida and were were clients of mine. Folks folks said that uh, they they wouldn't work and they've now been working for thirty five years. So I'm a happy camper. Good for them. Are they identical or fraternal? Oh, fraternal. Fraternal. Okay. Yep. Pretty cool. Yeah. So, did you? Did you start your life out at a school for the blind or in mainstream? No, I was mainstreamed. Uh, we had the chance to go to a school that had what they called at that time a resource room. So they did have mm-hmm. teachers that were there on campus. They weren't itinerant, but they were there. So if we needed something read, uh, or even in a couple of cases, something brailled, we could go there and they would read to us. Uh, and we had a period of time there, which might have been an hour. But the rest of the time, we were mainstreamed in school, and we thought that was important. So did our parents. And obviously, the teachers did, because we got a chance to mingle with other kids who were sighted, and we thought that was very important. And did you have any trouble making friends, or was was it pretty straightforward? Uh, You know, it was pretty straightforward. There were always, and I think there will always be the case where some people don't know what to say to a blind person, so they find it easier not to say anything. But Mm -hmm. but fortunately, we were both people people, and so Mm -hmm. we had no problems. We loved making friends and made a lot of them, still have many of them uh, to this day. That's the cool thing. Yeah, it is. That's the cool thing. I, I, I did a much worse job than, than you did at maintaining my friends. I mean, I made lots of good friends in school, but I've not kept in touch with them, which is a shame. I mean, I went it to the Foundation good. for the Junior Blind growing up and knew a lot of people. In fact, I met a ton of them again when I started coming to California Council of the Blind Functions mm-hmm. in 2018 because I, I came to that organization late and I knew all these people, but I hadn't seen many of them in years because I got busy and went to high school and college and and all my friends, essentially not all, but in most cases were sighted. So it was great for me to connect again and see what people were doing. I, I loved it. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed it very much. And were you uh, in in high school? Um, you were you continued mainstreaming. I I did. I went to a public high school as well. Uh, John and I were Type A, and we ran and everywhere we ran everywhere ran into furniture. We I mean we just mm-hmm. did. Our parents <laughs> yeah. were wonderful because they allowed us to get hurt in some cases because they didn't want to stop us because they didn't know anything about blind people when we were born. But they they found out about resources and they learned quickly. Let them do anything within reason. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. if they're going to do something that would be a dangerous thing to do, well, no, then use your parental instincts. Don't let them mm-hmm. do that. But we, we ran everywhere to the point where the in, in junior high school they made us wear catcher's masks because we <laughs> ran into stuff. We and so then then we thought to ourselves, hey, we've got catcher's masks on. I wonder what would happen if we were to jump off this fence. Would the masks protect us? Uh, they did not. No, but no, I they did they not. No, but we ran playing football and played football in the street. The parents of other kids said, could you get those blind people off bikes? They're not really supposed to be riding them through grass and ivy and mm-hmm. everything else on the <laughs> sidewalk. We played football in the street. John broke some kid's little finger accidentally, you know, because we played tackle football. We didn't just touch. Mm-hmm. Had a great time. 
probably was stupid nowadays, you know, but we had a great oh. time. The, our parents let us jump off high dives, you know, scared the heck out of them. The first time we crossed streets, it scared them, but they never stopped us, which was uh-huh. terrific, which was great for us. Larry, do you have any other siblings besides you and Yeah, John? I have a younger brother who's three years younger and a younger sister who is five years younger. So both of them can see. And of course, we were, as we talked about earlier, because of RLF, you know, too much oxygen. And uh, of course, if we hadn't had that, who knows what might have happened. So, you know, you deal with it. You know, well, and, that's and, what you do. You know, and, and you're, you guys are not as old as I, as I am. I, I must have been among the first um, RLF kids because the incubators were just coming into play, I think, at the end of the Second World War. Yeah, yeah. And, and we I were was, born in 55, was, so... And I was born in 45, so... But I think um, we were at the end of that that time frame, were we not? Or maybe it lasted till maybe 1960? I'm not sure. I don't remember when it actually ended. Yeah, well, I think I think by 55, they, they pretty much knew what was going on. Uh-huh. Um, and um, sometimes you just couldn't help it. No, but, no. But like you, I mean, given a choice, I, I'm, I'm perfectly content with um with with the life i've been able to oh lead. absolutely and, uh, but we don't yeah. know any other way you know I, so yeah. many times people would say boy don't you wish don't you wish you could see and i i frankly said no not really i mean considering i i've been blind now for 66 years and yep. i've talked to people who have got their got gained their sight back who are rlf and they said it's miserable and most of it's just the learning process and they said if i had to do it again i'm not sure i would have i'm not sure that that i've talked to anybody who's gotten their vision back from being pretty substantially blind who's loved it no Um, i would if somebody offered me my vision back now i'd tell them go to hell yeah well i don't think in our case it would happen because the doctors still don't know enough about the back of the eye and our yeah. retinas are detached, so it's not going to happen. Yeah. But even if it were, well, no, I don't think so. Could could happen for me. I've got two artificial eyes, so it could happen any yeah. day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be a one hell of a community call. You know that. That would be a hell of a community call. <laughs> Mr. Rick, you were born with a visual impairment? Yeah, I was. I was... Uh, Born legally blind, um, so I've always had vision, still do, um, although it's gotten considerably worse. It, you know, it, it got worse you know, when I went on disability about 12 years ago now, but, uh, you know, yeah, yes. So did you, did you, um, grow up in resource classes or just mainstreamed all the way and struggle? No, I was mainstreamed all the way. And I, I just, you know, a little bit about my background. My dad was legally blind, uh, youngest of nine kids. And the uh, age difference between him and, and his next sibling was like 12 years. So he obviously was a mistake mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or not, not intended, let's just say. So a little bit of dysfunction in that household. Um, the um, 
there was a family business that he ran in, that he worked in rather, and was very much protected in that whole thing. So he um, didn't really understand what it was like to be a visually impaired person. Right. Um, and uh, never sought out any type of services for the kids. I mean, three of the four kids are, are visually impaired. Um, I was declared legally blind in 1964 by the Mass Commission for the Blind, but it wasn't until uh, I was applying for a scholarship in college that I even went to a low vision clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, went to Catholic schools and were terrorized by the nuns. Yep, I bet. Uh, um, you know, some nuns were quite empathetic. Other nuns were saying, it's all in your head. You can really see it's all in your head because I had enough vision where I've always been good in terms of, of time and space. You know, I always mm-hmm. can, can navigate quite well, always have been able to. Um, my probably the most traumatic day of the year is when the eye doctor used to come in because the, the eye doctor, you know, would say, read the chart and I couldn't read the chart. And he would then look at my eyes and say, there's absolutely nothing wrong with your eyes. So it's all in your head. Right. Oh my God. And, and of course the condition that I have is, is optic atrophy and the, the eye itself, um, is a very functional eye. What has never generated properly were the optic nerves. And, uh, you know, they have to look way in the back of the eye to, to see that the optic nerve is paled and, and, mm-hmm. and not, not fully, not fully uh, uh, grown. So, so, mm-hmm. so anyways, it's, you know, that, um, now, did they discover that before you got out of high school, the, the optic atrophy stuff? Yeah, they suspected the optic atrophy. I mean, you know, when I say they didn't seek any uh, uh, any services for me, we would do the annual trip to the eye doctor in Boston. And, uh, and kind of the routine there is, you know, go see the doctor. He'd look at me, ask me to leave the room, and then talk to my parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, never... Nobody would ever tell me what the, what was up, and then the whole way home, I was convinced that I was dying. Oh no! Right, because if I wasn't yep. dying, they would have told. They would have told me. Right? me exactly. And so, so I must have cancer or something wrong, you know, whatever. So, so I don't think there were as many developments then as there are now in the field. But was going to a low vision clinic in college a, a pretty amazing moment for you? Well, yeah, it, you know, I mean, it was interesting, right? I, I, I got through grammar school in pretty good shape because the nuns took care of me. In high school, I went to a Catholic high school, but it was a little bit, a little bit rougher, and I had a C average. And uh, most of that was because I was working at McDonald's 40 hours a week <laughs> just to, uh, you know, kind of uh, get out of the house quite, quite literally. And, um, the, um, when I applied for a scholarship, you know, I found out that there was this thing called the mass commission for the blind, um, when I was a senior in, in high school and they gave out scholarships. So I, I, 
uh, went and had a case opened and didn't even know what a case was at that point in time. And they sent me to a low vision clinic. And the first thing the guy does is he, he grabs a, um, a monocular, a scope device mm-hmm. and says, here, tell me if this helps at all. And I, I, I freaked out because all of a sudden I could read everything on the chart and, you know, with, with that monocular and I, uh-huh. and, uh, so then I went to college with this monocular used to sit in the back of the class, pull out the monocular, totally freak out the professors because I wouldn't tell the professors that I was visually impaired uh-huh. until two or three weeks into the course, just so that I could freak them out. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, Came out of college with with a a three nine cum, so I did okay in college. But um, better than okay. What college did you go to? I went to Northeastern in Boston. Nice. As um, studied business, and that's when I realized that I was really good at slinging BS. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> my, my favorite story. Um, you know, the thing I did in, in college more than anything, more than attend class was either work at McDonald's part-time. Actually, I had three or four part-time jobs. And Northeastern was a co-op school. And I'll tell you my whole story about co-op if you want to hear that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. But uh, I was the general manager of the campus radio station four out of the five years. It was a five-year program. It was a co-op mm-hmm. program. It was five years. And... Um, uh, so that I had this course called organizational behavior and it was OB one and OB two, and this was mm-hmm. OB two. And it was literally a business course about basically a, a business psychology course. Right. So I had the same professor both semesters and the second semester he hands out the syllabus and he says, okay, one thing I want you to do this semester is write a journal. So every day after class, I want you to write a journal with something that's pertinent to whatever was discussed in class. Never went to any of the classes that semester. Came time to, uh, to where the journal was due, right? So I got myself a, 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 a spiral notebook, went to the library with, with about a dozen pens and pencils, you know, with, where some of them were blunt, some of them were sharp, you know. All right. <laughs> <laughs> started out by doodling in the columns and you know in, in in the edges of the page and ripping certain pages and you know kind of making it look like it was kind of worn and then pulled out the syllabus and proceeded to write pure fiction <laughs> through the entire thing you know i mean very plausible scenarios right Right, but but you know, I I would just relate these stories one after another, and I, I I God, do I wish I still had that journal? But I I submitted it, and I got it back with an A plus <laughs> plus, <laughs> with a note that said, "Mr. Moore, and this is one of the most per, you know, one of the one of the worst. I'm not worst. One of the best insightful journals I've ever read." <laughs> now, did you ever tell him? No, never, no, never did. No, 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 no. <laughs> My worst experience with that, I was was in high school, and I had this little old lady who taught French. Her name was Mrs. Earl. I don't think she can be alive now, so I'm probably safe. But but our desks had 
they were they were flat desks, but underneath the, the top of the desk there was a shelf. Yeah, that, yeah. That, w- was, that was was it, was it like a rack shelf. Yeah, it, no, no. It was. It okay. actually had. It it actually was filled in. Okay, but th- there was a there was a a little tiny ledge in front, so it was just perfect to put braille pages in with oh, all your French vocabulary written yes. on it. Okay. I did the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Except my teacher found out about it and I walked into the room, not because he didn't tell me that he found out about it. And we found that the desk had been taped all the way. So we couldn't put our hands in there to read because he found out we were reading while class was on. (laughs) (laughs) That's very mean of them. It really is. Uh, yeah, it's funny now. <laughs> it, but the the advantages that blindness can afford are very few. So it, it's always nice when you can occasionally take advantage of some. How many times have I read <laughs> books at night for long periods of time? Because the people can't you know, who can see can't see the light on, so they think we're asleep. You know, I've done that. I've I've listened to radio. They never know. They never hear it. But I've, yeah, I've read, gosh, I used to read long into the night. Long, long into the night. So much that there was a Braille book I read, and it was a Western, and it was 400 and some pages. And I got engrossed in the book, and I read, and I'm in f- fourth grade. And I walk out to the kitchen, and my I'm walking, and my mom's there making breakfast. I said, Mom, there's what is this it's it's coming off my finger i don't know what it is and it's wet and she looked and she said oh my god you've gone through the first layer of skin oh my god wow <laughs> yeah wow. i had only time that's I, ever happened wow i spent part of my school days in a in a boarding school for boys and the print the, the principal whose name is mrs Drivenside, lived on the same floor as my dorm was and she would cut, come out and catch me reading at sort of ten and eleven at night, and she would say, "Well, if you can, if you can read, you can get up and you can sit on a stool in the middle of the in the middle of the second floor and let everybody see you and stay there until midnight or one o'clock in the morning. It's fine. <laughs> That's what you would do." <laughs> um, did that stop me? No, no, no. of course not. <laughs> What did you say her name was? Mrs. Drivenside? It's a great name. It is. It's a terrific name. And all wise. D-R-Y-V-Y-N-S-Y-D. Wow. 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 And she she came over from Australia and actually and actually wrote a novel called The Silent Dust about Australian history that got turned into a radio play. It was really quite interesting. Oh wow. wow! She was an amazing old lady, though she's something of a battle axe, but uh, wouldn't let me get away with very much, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, Mr. Larry, you you finished high school, and what happened? I went to. Um, I say I finished high school in '73. Went to Rio Hondo College, which was a junior college in Whittier. Um, and, and, and it was, um, and I could go to and from, so, you know, I went home, the bus picked me up, took me home, etc. And I was there for two years and I got an AS degree, Associate of Arts degree. Um, and that was fun. It was nice because I got a chance to see and meet people that are still friends to this day. 
we meet once or twice a year and, and have barbecues, you know, or whatever. Nice. And it's it's just great stuff. We didn't do it because of the pandemic, but we're talking about doing it again this year. And it's great nice. that we just get people together and just, rem- you know, remember the old days, laugh and talk and enjoy ourselves. It is so good. I, I wouldn't give that up for the world. And then I went to, uh, I went to Cal Poly Pomona for four years, stayed there on campus, and really indoctrinated sighted people, because John and I were the only two blind people on campus, uh, and got uh, BS degrees in communication, which is probably apropos, mm-hmm. and enjoyed it, and took, you know, took radio, did radio, etc., and played shows, uh, John John was on the air all the time. I wrote copy and things like that, but I did that in 73, 74, 75. Um, and then I you know, got a, a degree in communications, didn't do anything really with it, not, not from a speech perspective. But long about that time, maybe a few years earlier, John and I both found dramatic radio. We love the old, old radio shows. We heard them on the mm-hmm. air here locally and said, wow, these would be fun to collect. Uh, now, 50 years later, we have tons of them, some on open reel, but most of them have been digitally remastered now, and they're on hard drives and external drives here. And we, we've been playing shows on the air since about 1978, uh, continually to this day. I took some time off when I got married, but we've been playing the shows. I was president of an organization that preserves the old shows, chaired 30 of their national conventions, uh, we interviewed probably 500 people over the course of that time on the air, uh, people who worked in the shows, and then later when they were older, their children and people who wrote books about them. So lots of fun. Um, but after that, eventually got to, uh, to go to Braille Institute and you know, learned some things in terms of some catch-up work on things like daily living type skills, stuff that I knew, but but certainly got Got some uh, courses to help me with that cooking. I knew how to cook a little, but this helped me a lot. And 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 that's that's kind of where I learned that you know I wanted to find a job. It had not been easy to find a job, and the first one I found was for a cigarette company, which I hated because I don't smoke, and it was all outbound calls. Uh, but through Braille Institute, I, I uh, hooked up with Marriott International and got hired in 2000. Huh? And I was a, I was an agent for the first two years. But I remember in training in 2000 when I got hired, I told the guy who wrote all of our scripts for Jaws, I said, you know, this is, this is cool. And I think I'm going to enjoy this, but I know in five years I'm not going to be wanting to do the same thing. And he said, okay, what would you like to do? I said, I would like to want to do something maybe like what you're doing. Uh, maybe testing. I was not a programmer, so I knew that I would have to learn that skill. And he remembered that, and about a year and a half later, he uh, had some personal issues that made it necessary for him to leave Marriott. And he told my manager, and she said, are you still interested in helping us with regard to, in essence, it's a support role to test Uh scripts that were written to make the reservation system work? Because we had about 40 blind people uh, about 30 using JAWS and uh, the other 10 using, it was magic at the time. And I said, absolutely. And the first week they found out very quickly that I didn't have a programming background and it would be ludicrous for them to put me in the role of both programmer and tester. So they had plenty of programmers who worked for Marriott and they asked one of them to learn JAWS. And he flew out 
and I gave him several booklets and several script manuals about Jaws. He learned it. And I was in that role for 21 years until I retired in October. And I was responsible for making sure that people could do their jobs in terms of being able to use JAWS to work through the reservation system to make reservations for people. And do, do you know how many how many people Marriott has hired now who are blind? Over the years, I, I would say, because we hired several, I would say probably 70 to 80 who were using JAWS yep. and almost 50 to 60 who use some form of either magic or later Zoom text. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of folks. It is, yeah. And my biggest thing was it wasn't anything that it wasn't all done so that I would look good. I wanted to make sure that I was doing my job well enough so that other people could succeed. Uh, and that's what it really was all about for me. And so it was very exciting over the years when people got promoted and people got to do things that you know maybe I had a hand in. I really think it's it, it, it's interesting that they could talk about being promoted because. There are a lot of um, there are a lot of positions like reservationists that seem to be kind of dead end positions where you don't have any place to go. It's true, and and a lot of the companies who hire blind people don't take that into account. And it would be far easier to make all of the equipment and all of the different systems accessible to begin with. So it sure would save them a lot of money. So that if Good somebody point. wants to actually, you know, be uh, in a position where they could be promoted, it would it would work. Uh, in our mm-hmm. case, we had people promoted to lead positions, and in my mm-hmm. case, to my position. But I know mm-hmm. in other companies they don't have that luxury, and and I can I won't name any of them. It's not necessary. But but there's no way to promote anybody because none of the systems work with Jaws, and and or any other screen reader. The money to make it happen. No, but it, and it costs them more yeah. money. When we went yeah. to a website production, they unfortunately our company was just like most of the rest, and they tried to cram everything in so that it would work. And if they had gone to accessibility from the ground up and worked as they went along, mm-hmm. it would have been far better. I remember trying to help fix things, and it was ludicrous because then they would make changes that would break what we just fixed. Yep. It just drove us nuts, but. You know, it's it's easier, I guess, said than done, and we're not controlling the purse strings either. So, so never so ending. Mr. Battle. Rick, you you have now finished college. Yes, sir. And <laughs> and drum roll. So you finished Northeastern, and then what? Well. I, the way I finished Northeastern is actually a pretty good story. So, do you want to hear mm-hmm. that first? Sure. Uh huh. Um, the reason why I went to Northeastern was because of the co-op program, and you know the co-op program was a situation where you alternated work with study. So you you know you'd have a a, a semester, and then you'd have three or six months of work, and the schools would facilitate you getting jobs. You still had to apply for them, compete for them, all that kind of stuff. So. Um, you know, I had I always had a pretty good cum throughout all of college. So I was very naive in college. I always thought that, um, you know, a uh, I would put on my resume that I was legally blind and you know with a three nine cum or whatever it was. And I always thought employers would say, hey, "This guy must have something on the ball to be legally uh-huh. blind and and such a high cum." And I would I would get first interviews and never get a second interview. And this went on for 
three of my five years. In my fourth year, I finally um, uh, said to my advisor, um, Professor Chilvers was her name, Elizabeth Chilvers, um, very stunning woman who just had an incredible presence. Uh Um, I said to her, I said, um, you know, I'm going to pull this off my resume that I'm legally blind. And, um, and I will ask questions during the course of the interview to determine if my eyesight is something relevant to do the job. And if it isn't, then as far as I'm concerned, it's irrelevant. I won't even bring it up. And she said, fine, I support you on that 100%. So I went from just getting, you know, I always had a co-op job, but it was always kind of the bottom of the barrel job. Uh-huh. And so I was a, a marketing uh, and management major. And um, all of a sudden I started interviewing and I beat out 12. It was, it was the best marketing co-op job that I beat out 12 people. And I got nice. Okay. Um, and what it was, was basically sales support for a sales office of mobile oil in White Plains, New York. Um, so I fly out there, you know, get out to, get out to white plains and, you know, find myself a, a rooming house. And I had this nice woman to rent me a room and, and, uh, go to, go to work. And I sit down and they show me what I got to do. And my job was actually pretty funny. My job was to, um, uh, I forgot how I did this, but I, I would find out what other gas stations were paint were charging for their their gas by the gallon and right. map map it into a spreadsheet so mobile would manipulate its m- manipulate its price based on what other people were charging okay? so that was kind of kind of eye-opening in its in its own right right mm-hmm. but anyways it was like second or third day on the job and the guy who was the uh, vice president of marketing who was this uh, Harvard Business School type looking guy with chiseled features and you know mm-hmm. the, the ties with the stripes that go in the right direction and all this kind mm-hmm. of stuff comes by throw me his throws me his keys and says drive me out to the golf course I want you to caddy and I said well I've got a bit of a problem I don't drive he said, what do you mean you don't drive and I said well, I'm legally blind so what do you mean you're legally blind I said yeah I'm legally blind. And I don't have a license. So I saw his face go crimson red at that point. Uh-huh. Went into his office, slammed the door, and called the university. Um, and I heard a lot of yelling from his office at the time. So I got a call from the university saying, uh, we just got you a plane ticket. Get your butt back in Boston. Oh, no. So. Um, and this guy threatened fraud, you know, he said, I, I would, I fraudulently got the job. He was going to make a lot of trouble for Northeastern mobile was giving Northeastern like a quarter of a million dollars a year in funding. And they were going to pull all that back and on, 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 on. So, so I, I get back to the university and I was blackballed. I mean, no professor wanted anything to do with me. I mean, the word got out pretty quick of what had happened throughout the entire university. And, um, and there was one guy, Ernie Barrasso, who was the head of co-op, who was actually trying to get me thrown out of school. 
Now, so somehow I, I made my way through a couple of semesters. Then I went into my senior year. And of course I had a burr under my saddle, uh, this whole thing. And oh, by the way, one of the, one of the interesting parts of this whole story was once mobile, you know, sent me home, all of a sudden, uh, Northeastern got me a co-op job that actually made a buck an hour more than I would have made at mobile. Uh, never really understood why that was at the time, but that all fit, you know falls into the story later on. Mm-hmm. So, um, so anyway, senior year, uh, you know, again, being you know the radio station was at one end of of uh, of the L Student Center on the fourth floor. Mm-hmm. Campus newspapers on the other end, so I said I'm just going to walk down to the campus newspaper and tell the editor a story about this blind co-op kid who got screwed by co-op, blind kid who got screwed by co-op. So I told this, you know, this guy the whole story in the third person, mm-hmm. and he said to me, "Do you know this guy?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Who was it?" I said, "Me." And so the next issue of the Northeastern News had three-inch headline on the the whole front page was this story with these huge headlines at the top and a picture of me (laughs) with long hair (laughs) where the quote was rick morin says blind people who are uh who are disabled get screwed by co-op and i said oh come on of all the things you said you had to pull that quote right yep but anyway, so, so you know, uh, the newspaper was all all over the school, and uh, and so I'm up at the up, up at the radio station, and I get a call from the dean of university administration, and he says, "Get your butt in my office right now." Mm-hmm. So, uh, and and we had done a lot of work at the radio station for the for the for the school and for his office. I knew him quite well. He ended up being the president of Northeastern down the road. Uh, Dean Kennedy was his name. And so I, I go into his office and he says to me, um, he said, I'm going to talk to you as a university administrator. And as a friend, as university and administrator, you have be- become one of the biggest pains in my side right now. Um, and I really wish that hadn't happened the way it did. And I said, yeah, me too. Um, and he said, now, as a friend, I totally agree with you. You got screwed over by this whole thing. You said you did nothing wrong. I would never admit that and never admit that to anybody. But if I were in your situation, I would have done all the right things. How can I help you? And I said, well, my number one objective is to get a job. And right now, there's nobody in the school that will touch me. So he said, well, I'll, uh, I'll call down to grad placement, tell the head of grad placement that you're his number one priority and, uh, and, you know, let him see what he can do. So I go to grad placement. They were waiting for me, you know, really friendly. The guy spent two days trying to talk me into going to Harvard, trying to convince me that he could get me into Harvard. And I kept saying, no, I, I mean, I'm not smart enough to, to do Harvard. And, um, and all I want is a job. I just want a job. I want to be gainfully employed. And, uh, and the school owes that to me. 
So anyways, there was this company called EDS, which was a company owned by Ross Perot that was doing a lot of uh, campus recruiting mm-hmm. and it came on campus. And, and uh, my first and only interview coming out of college was with EDS. So, you know, they, they had hired uh, a suite of rooms at the Park Plaza Hotel in downtown Boston. They had a ballroom. We went into the ballroom. There were about 30 kid, college kids in there. We all saw a, a slideshow presentation that talked about how great a people company EDS was that even though it was an IT company, it was people first and it was all about business and we didn't do IT for IT sake. We did it to solve business problems and we valued our employees more than anything. Da, 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 da. So, and I had to fill a, a long form resume where in there, one of the questions in the resume was, are you uh, disabled? And I said, yes. And I think back then I said, are you handicapped? And I said, yes. And I disclosed what it was because they asked. And so, uh, everybody started pairing off for private interviews. You know, they'd call somebody's name, uh, and they'd, they'd all pair off. And then it ended up being me and this other guy. And this guy had, you know, looked like an IBM or black suit, you know, uh, <laughs> black suit socks that cat that went all the way up his calf, you know, all this kind of stuff. And he says to me, he says, you can't be Rick Morin. And I said, why not? He said, well, it says here, Rick Morin's blind. And he said, I don't see a white cane. I don't see a guide dog. And, and, I, and, and I said, I said, okay, forget it. I'm not even going to waste my time with you guys. But let me tell you something. I will tell everybody that I, that I meet that, you know, what you said in your presentation versus what you just demonstrated to me are so out of sync. It's incredible. I mean, you're, you know, this presentation saying that, you know, everybody's valuable and so on and so forth. And, and, and you said something, you know, very, very insensitive to me. And I, I don't appreciate it. Um, I don't appreciate being stereotyped that way. You know, I, I just come off a situation with mobile oil. I told him that story and I said, you know, I'm out of here. Well, his face went bright red and he said, stay here for a minute. And he (laughs) ran off. And talked to uh, the people who were running this whole interview process and came back and said, you know, I really want to interview. I apologize. Apologize. I really want to interview you. And uh, and I said, sure. So we went off and we talked and it was an hour hour long interview. And I spent the first half hour of the interview of the interview interviewing him. Uh, just like I was doing a, you know, a radio show and finally uh-huh. half hour into it, we, he laughed and I laughed and he said, he said, you know, I'm supposed to be interviewing you. And I said, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. So, um, and you know, by that point we had, you know, a lot of the, um, a lot of the ice had been thawed and stuff. Right. but at, at the end of the interview, the, the rules were, we all knew this going in that they would, if they made you a job offer, you had to say yes, right then and there. And if you didn't say yes, you would not get a job. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you weren't willing to, to commit that day, then they didn't want you because they, it was very militaristic in their point of view. Mm-hmm. So get to the end of the interview and he goes off and, you know, and talks to his boss and they come back and they decide to make me a job interview. I mean, a, a job offer. And, uh, and I said, well, uh, you know, given the way this interview started, um, 
I, uh, I don't feel comfortable making a decision today. And if you require a decision today, then my answer is no, which is a shame because I think I could bring a lot of value to the company. And, uh, but I still, I, 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 you know, I still have to wrap my head around everything that happened today. And I'm, I'm still kind of a little bit zinging from the way this, this all started. So he runs off in the hall again and comes back and he says, okay, we've, we've agreed to give you two weeks to think about it. Now they did this for nobody. Okay. <laughs> I mean, nobody. And I'm the only person that I know of that they've ever done this for in EDS. So I said, yeah, great. So he said, on such and such a day, I'll call you at 11 o'clock in the morning. Where are you going to be? I said, I'm going to be in the middle of my show on the campus radio station. Here's the phone number. Call it on the studio line, and I'll be there waiting for your call, right? So it's this day, and I'm watching the second hand sweep up on the clock, right? We've got every, all the clocks just, you know, synchronized to, to the second. And the thing hits the top of the hour, and damn it, the phone rings. And, and it was him. And, and of course, when I had left the interview that day, I had already decided I was going to say yes, you know, because I, I said, you know, if they, if they went to the extent of, of doing this for me, then they demonstrated enough goodwill. There's no, way, sure I gonna, yep. no way I was yep. not going to turn that but, job down. But you're not going to tell them that. Then. But, no, I'm not going to no. tell them. So, so I basically partied for two weeks, <laughs> knowing, knowing that I had a job, right? So, but, but they, they paid me, um, the salary they offered me was the lowest possible salary they could offer me. Uh -huh. So, so that pissed me off, but, but, you know, the good news to the story is that, uh, within two years, I quadrupled my salary. So, wow. Um, nice. the, uh, it was an IT company. They hired me into an entry level program. Um, you know, we, we had a phase one where I worked at an insurance company and um, did a lot of troubleshooting. Uh, back then, everything was punch cards, and uh, um, which was a, a whole trip unto itself. But I went to phase two, which was the training training routine in Dallas. Thirteen weeks, seven days a week, about eighteen hours a day, with one break in the middle. And I got to break weekend, and I went in and I quit. And and they, and, and, and they said, "Why are you quitting?" And I said. I can't deal with it. I mean, my, I, I just, you know, my eyes, as much as I don't want to use this as, a, as an excuse, I just can't do it um, physically, can't do it physically. And I, and I didn't say that in a threatening way or whatever. I just really wanted to quit. And so they went off in the hall again, came back and said, um, what do you need? I said, I need two weeks off. Well, again, they never did this for anybody either. They gave me two weeks <laughs> off. Um, I mean, if if you you know uh, didn't make it through break weekend, you got fired, right? But they yep, gave me yep. they gave me two weeks off. So in those two weeks, I took all my manuals home, and after three days, after I got caught up on my sleep, I read my manuals for two weeks, right? For for the rest of the two weeks, mm -hmm. came back, you know, with a jump start on. I rejoined in another class, and I just aced the rest of the class. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so, so anyway, so I joined EDS and I have been with that. I was with that company for 34 years. Wow. Wow. 34 so, years. So let's go back to the last semester and Larry, feel free to jump in here okay. if you want to, but let's go back to the last semester, Rick, and, 
and and your your initial interview with ETS. Um, the guy says to you, um, you know, you're not using a white cane, you're not using a guide dog, so you can't be blind. Um, that that would not have bothered, I don't think, either Larry or or me. No. Um, in fact, why they didn't bother you. In fact, they knew I was blind going in because I told yeah, them. We, yeah, and, and, and of course we did. I did have a cane. But yeah, I so did I. Yeah, it was very apparent. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> well, I wasn't. I mean, cane wasn't till later in my life. Okay. Um, and and that's my you know when I finally started caning was a a whole nother story unto itself, and and, and there's a lot of reasons for it, but. Um, I, I just resented the, the stere, you know, being stereotyped. Is it because you really didn't want to think of yourself as blind? Do you think? I, I'm sure there was an element of that. You know, I, I, well, let's put it this way. I had never up to that point, I had never met a blind person in my entire life. Okay. Mm-hmm. The whole 34 years I worked, I never met a blind person at work for 34 years. Um, I, uh, you know, I was one of these people that uh, was able to get by with, you know, magnification and Zoom text and, and hiding the fact that, that I was disabled. Um, and, um, but, you know, my wife, after that episode, my wife told me, and, and, and some of this was survival on my part, right? I, I, I mean, I was, I was annoyed at having gone through this experience before and and i I, you know i was cocky as all get out right Um, and and i wasn't going to let this guy off the hook and you know and when i got home that day my wife said she i'll never forget she ever said this story we weren't married at the time but she said she said you know uh uh, the thing you do with your disability is you use it you use it as a weapon yes uh-huh. And uh, so, and, and 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 I would actually buy that, given given what you said so far. Right. I mean, I, I I think I think that's pretty insightful of her. So would yeah. would you would you agree with that? No, yeah, I, I and and well, and I did that through my entire career. Um, you know, this is I, I worked. It was all pre ADA. You know, I kept asking for accommodations. I would get told no, and then I would eventually, um, you know, elevate it to the point where you know the CIO and uh, and EDS got to know me quite well, and I always got every every accommodation I asked for. Now, part of it was I worked my butt off, right, and I was good at what I did. Yes, yeah. And, and and I think that's the point because I was about to say that that um, in every in every job I had, um, I, because I was good at what I did, um, I they they had more to lose if if I were to walk away from the job than than they than they did by providing me the accommodations that I asked for. Right. Now, the Division of Blind Services in Florida um, wouldn't give me a damn thing. Right. Um, so, so I had to get all of my accommodations either by myself, which was often the case, mostly the case, or, uh, or, or, through, um, or, or, or through my employer, which was, which was certainly the case um, 
later on in employment because yeah. um, because because by then it was more common um, for for the word accommodation to be used and reasonable accommodations became kind of a phrase and yeah. and, I, and and I was always uh, and this this is not bragging it's simply telling the truth I was always ahead of the curve in terms of in terms of doing my job and I was all yeah. I always did far more than I was required to do is, and I was I was too and and it, and we noticed I noticed I don't know if the company did but I think they did because they looked at all the, the reports about all of the people they hired were probably better agents because mo- almost all of them were phone agents were far better phone agents than their sighted counterparts because yeah. they had to be you know right. jobs and, didn't come around that often and if you get a job you better keep it well and 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 also blind blind people are typically better at talking than, yes. than sighted people are yeah and and we hear what we're saying which a lot of sighted people don't correct correct all right yeah interesting just, just, just a couple more things about northeastern sure I, I don't regret for a minute that I went there. I mean, my whole reason for going to Northeastern was a co-op program so that, so that I could get a job. And had, you know, I, I, I've always considered myself very fortunate. And I've, I've always landed on my feet, okay? And I'm a big believer in you make your own luck, right? Yeah. Um, and, and um, you know, it, it, there are days where I, you know, I would think, you know, gee, you know, I'm lucky. But, um, you know, it, all these circumstances that happened as miserable as they were to go through in some cases, you know, all led to a very successful, fruitful life. And had I not been determined to get a job and leverage something like the co-op program to help that be a springboard for me, I probably would have gone to Hamburg university with McDonald's and been a manager at McDonald's, right. Um, You know, making, you know, $35,000 a year. Right. Um, so, so the, 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 you know, one of the things that I, you know, I, 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 I know of almost, well, I've been exposed to a lot of, um, uh, you know, of people that, that provide services here, um, locally. And, and I'm, I, I'm amazed because I, you know, they're, they're, the commission always wants to do internships, internships. Right. Right. And I'm always saying, Damn it! Send these kids to Northeastern. Get them in the co-op program. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know. Um, and I, I, I wonder if that would have made any difference to, to most blind people today. I mean, it's an it's an interesting question for debate. Maybe, maybe some of the folks who are who are who are listening will have an opinion about it. But, but I think our generation, and and, and it's an awful thing to say. But I think I think that our generation was much more likely to be aggressive and successful in a co-op program than kids are now would be likely to be now. I think that's true. I think yeah. I think and yeah. not in all cases, certainly. And I'm not trying to pigeonhole people, but no. we live in an entitled society to a large yeah. degree. And people just think that they can be given stuff and not only, not everybody, but there is a large yeah. percentage that do. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, I, I in, in Trinidad, I, in effect, work for nothing for a year to satisfy myself that I could do the job. And then I pretended I was wrecked um, <laughs> and, and essentially and essentially said to anybody who'd listen at at the top end of the education system in Trinidad, um, 
I'm not going to take this anymore. I've demonstrated to myself that I can teach. I'm far more qualified than any other applicant that you're going to get because I had a master's degree. Um, I, I know this, I know the subject matter I'm going to be required to teach and, and by God, you're going to hire me because a, I'm good and B I'm more qualified than either any other candidate you're going to find. Yeah. You know, one thing, one thing, Paul, I think you and I are very similar, you know, I haven't heard your story. You know, I, I, I used to wonder why I was so driven at that point. Yeah. And, you know, I came, I came from a very abusive household. Mom was drunk. Dad, dad was an abuser. Um, just beat me down to the point where I would never be successful. I wasn't worth anything. I'd never be worth anything. Heard that. (laughs) And, and, um, uh, you know, self-esteem in the toilet. I worked at McDonald's literally to get out of the house, kind of built up, you know, a little bit of self-worth through that, uh, kind of fell into, into the college thing. But, uh, you know, it, it, it was this survival instinct that yes. just, just drove me like crazy. And, and I wasn't going right. to let anything hold me back. And, and I'm absolutely sure that that, was, that that was my situation as well. I mean, I, I, was, I was bound, well, I, in, the, in the first place in, in Trinidad, I didn't know anything about SSI. Yeah. Um, didn't have any. Um, but, but, but I knew what my capabilities were. Uh, you know, I knew I was the, the first kid to go to university in, in the West Indies. I knew I'd won a scholarship. I knew, um, <clears throat> I knew that I'd gotten into an international relations program that had turned me down initially, just, just like, just like you were with, with the first co-op job. And, and so I knew I was good by the time I was finished. And I, I like you, you're, yeah, you're right. I think it was, it was a, it was a question of, of surviving. I expected, um, I expected to be successful. And I think that makes a huge difference. Um, and, uh, Though I and I think you're coming from the same point as I am, though. Um, for a long time, I'm sure that I worked harder than I needed to oh, yeah. because I felt like if I didn't, I was going to lose my job because yeah. because yeah. I wasn't going to be competitive. I was always told, uh, growing up and going to college by teachers, that you have to be able to work twice as hard as a sighted person in order to to stay with them to keep your job. You know, and that's really BS. But we're I know. all told it. I, think. I know. I, I know it is. Yeah. Yeah. But but we're all told it. Yeah. Um, yeah. For sure. It's it's um it's it's interesting. But so much so much about me. Yeah. Well, for now. <laughs> you know, I, um, I, I I just like telling that story. So it's a great I story. I, I don't get to tell it very often. Yeah. But, but you know, it's very true. So. so Larry, let's talk about old time radio for a minute. Okay. Um, I, I am, I am also obviously an old time radio fan, though I think I come from a slightly different perspective. Well, you lived it, uh, uh, yeah. I think, more so than I did. I mean, I remember the last few years from you know sixty, sixty one, sixty two. But yes. So I, I am a huge British old time radio oh, fan. Okay. Um, because from. Let's see, 1959 until 1976. Um, I lived in British colonies, and, and of course they became independent 
countries and, mm-hmm. uh, e- eventually, but they still they still were far more Anglophone than they were American. Um, and and so a lot of the programs that I grew up with were like British versions of Sherlock Holmes rather than rather than the American things with Basil Rathbone and um, whoever the other guy was. Nigel Bruce. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, you're quite right. And um, and and you know the, those those used to make me mad that the the Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce because they oversimplified the stories and they threw characterization away. Um, and 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 you wouldn't really know that unless you'd listen to a lot of British Sherlock Holmes. Yes, there, there were there were um, there were a whole series of Sherlock Holmeses that were played by um, different folks um, in 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 the UK, um, but but they took the Sherlock Holmes canon much more seriously and eventually they did every single short story that conan doyle ever wrote and the novels um but it 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 very much is was a difference between um the 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 american approaches and and the british approaches um i i remember listening on shortwave radio in in jamaica to things like um which play was it um was a George Bernard Shaw play, um, and it was something at arms, um, not man at arms, but uh, it or oh, arms and the man, maybe. Uh, maybe, I, yeah, I know, I know which one you mean, but I'm not pulling the title yeah, right now. No, uh, and that's okay. It was, a, it was it was absolutely stupendous to listen to it, and I I became a huge George Bernard Shaw fan, mm. and and would 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 look for his stuff whenever I could, but of course. Um, no such thing as the internet then, and and most of the the drama that I listened to was either from Australia or New Zealand, or or the UK on shortwave radio. So it was very different from, and it was a it was an immense lifeline for me. Yes, uh, I I mean radio was was um, was one of the things that enabled me to survive <clears throat> my situation at home. Um, because a lot of the time I could just hide myself away and listen to Chick Hearn doing basketball and uh, oh my gosh, on, I'll be done. Armed Forces Radio, oh, yeah, with the Lakers uh, and, back then, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, and and then of course, you know, all of the all of the famous baseball announcers doing doing games. It yeah. was so it was with you know Mel Allen and Phil mm. Rizzuto, and, Vince Scully, and people, like, yeah, yeah oh, Scully, definitely, yeah, Vince absolutely, Scully, yeah. It's interesting because of my radio background in terms of collecting, um, I collected a lot of news as well. And it was fascinating for me because fortunately I've been able to travel around, not around the world, but I did a movie in Vietnam and I was in Berlin for a little bit at a, at a f- film festival uh, and other places and I actually had a chance to see some of these places. But what I learned in terms of radio, hearing the actual news broadcasts, I was able to understand a bit more about what those places were about because I got a chance to hear them. Yeah, I, I still have kind of, I, I'm not saying I do it every day because I don't. But most days, um, I, I will try to listen to some NPR from, from this country. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the news from Australia, the news from the UK, 
and usually the news from Canada. So <clears throat> essentially there'll be four English-speaking news perspectives, and they're all different, um, that, that, that I get every day. Um, and, it, and it's really kind of cool because it, it means that none of the perspectives that I have are, are anywhere close to um, the American one. Yeah. And, and of course, for me, having lived um, 20 years of my life in a third world country or two, um, my attitude towards a lot of uh, a, a lot of American habits and attitudes is very different from from that, I guess, of the average American Joe. I, I can understand that. Even the brief time we were in Vietnam, we were in China as well, getting ready to go to Vietnam for this movie. So I got a chance to see what third world countries were like and how blind people were treated. And right. and we were we were the exception rather than the rule when we were there, and I was found I found out very quickly that most blind people were institutionalized, yeah. or separated from society. So people yep. saw us and did double takes, not only because yeah. we were twins, but because we were actually out and about and able to move around as normal people would. Yeah, and blind people in those countries are stereotypes. Yes, they're they are expectations that 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 they have and and they're the only ones they're allowed to meet yeah exactly you know that the university college of the west indies which was part of the university of london i think had been going on since oh 1920 um but this this brass young american kid was the first blind kid to go there Hmm. in 64 wow and um and 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 it was it was bizarre because 20 years later when I went to my first meeting of the World Blind Union, um, I um, th- these guys from the Caribbean came running up to me and said, "You know, we 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 want to buy you a beer, man, because <laughs> you're the one who broke down the barriers. You're the one who proved that a blind person could do it." Wow! And so after Very that, nice. they couldn't keep us out. But uh, the point that I'm making is not. Not about me, but about the stereotypes you're talking about. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And they're prevalent today. They Still are. probably. They're, I don't uh, think they've changed. Oh, I'd like to think they've changed A some. little? Okay, good. And I'd, good. And I'd like to think that the World Blind Union has helped. Yeah. And yeah, um, yeah the, 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 there's a, another whole story we could talk about. So for a while, <clears throat> you guys, let's open it up. All right, um, and see what see what uh, questions people might have. We've been chatting among ourselves for a fair length of we time. We have. Maybe I'll ask you one other question, Lair, while people have a chance to raise their hands. All right. So, um, what's it like living with a twin? A lot of people ask that, and and I lived with my family and with John for a for a long amount of time, and then course got married and people said how are you going to handle that i said well there's nothing to handle i mean you know yeah we're close as twins are close but you know i'm getting married he's eventually hopefully he will at some point someday but i said you know i'm going to be living my life he'll live his uh and and my wife was a little bit she said gee i i almost feel guilty about you know breaking you up supposedly i said don't think a thing about it you know no i'm and so we we 
we lived together for 10 years until she passed away, which I think I've told mm-hmm. you about before. But but we, John and I have a bond, obviously, because we're twins. We enjoy a lot of the same things to the point where she said, you know, once I'm gone, I want him to move back in with you because you share so many of the same passions. We're both 48-year barbershoppers. Mm-hmm. We sing, mm-hmm. we perform, and, and we do radio. And uh, now, of course, we're both involved heavily with ACB, radio, CCB. I'm involved heavily with my church. Uh, so is John with his. We have separate churches because when Melinda and I were married, she had some issues with the Catholic Church. I grew up Catholic, but I said, "Look, whatever we do, we're gonna we're gonna worship together. We're not gonna go to two mm-hmm. separate churches." And she agreed. Right. And we found a church, and I'm still there. I'm still there today. I you know I got went back for the second time in a year because of COVID, and it was so nice because I actually got to see to see people whom I hadn't seen in a year. As a matter of fact, I I found out, and maybe you're aware of this too, but I asked some sighted friends. I said, I got back to church Sunday and I started talking to people and I heard their voice, but I hadn't talked to them in a year. And I had to mentally say, okay, now who is that? What's that person's name? And it took like five or 10 seconds. I thought it was on a time delay until it went, ah, that's who that is. And I yeah. asked friends who are cited, does that happen to you? And they said, yes, it does. I was not prepared for that. It blew I me away. It does. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty amazing. Uh-huh. Yep. Mr. Rick, do we have any hands? We do not. Nope. We are sufficiently dull so that no one cares to raise their hand. Either that or we're so <laughs> damn good nobody wants us well, to Well, there stop. is that too. <laughs> so, so Rick, my hand just popped up. Ah, nope, and it just, ah, and it up, just there it goes. Down. Somebody's teasing. <laughs> <laughs> up and down, up and down. So, Rick, in terms of in in talk talk to me about when you were forced to recognize that your your blindness was more than an inconvenience. Um. That's kind of an interesting question. I never really thought about it that way. I mean, I, uh, I mean, the blindness, you know, was always something that. Sure, and it was it was always there. But, I, but what, what I'm that, suggesting that, though that, is that you you did your damnedest to present it to pretend it wasn't. Well, I, I, I mean, I, you know, basically worked 34 years and then I, I basically had a nervous breakdown at the end of the 34 years because it got to the point where I was working 80 hours to get 40 hours worth of work out and I was expected to do 60 hours worth of work. And, yeah, and, and, and your vision had, had by that time started to deteriorate some more. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It had, it had, yeah. So, um, so I just kind of, you know, the, the whole house of cards kind of came falling in at that point. So um, that's probably well, where I had an advantage over you because I have I have no sight, but I have I can see light. But I know what my acuity is and have known for my whole life. Right. It didn't fluctuate at all. And so, I mean, when people tell me like what you're telling me now, I can't even imagine how tough that might have been. Oh, very. I think. Yeah. Yeah. 
and because I think when I first met you, the, the 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 sorts of stories that I was hearing was that you were you were having to to magnify so that you could barely get one or two cells of a spreadsheet onto the screen. That that is true. That and that is still the case. But um, and and I still use magnification. I mean, I use speech, you know, more and more, but I still use magnification. So. Um, but but it, it you know it I I used to tell I used to tell folks at 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 the college um, I'm fine with your using magnification I'll provide you with the CCTV I'll provide you with an electronic magnifier to take home with you I'll 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 do all these things but you got to demonstrate to me that you can read fast enough that right. it's worth my while to give you these damn things. Right. No. And that's, and that's fair. And I, you know, the, um, it, it's kind of hard to, um, I mean, the whole low vision thing is, 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 is so interesting and varied because right. you know, the spectrum is just so wide. And, and one of the things I've been very fortunate with is that my acuity is like 22,000. I mean, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. Right? Wow. But my field division is not bad. Okay, so so I'm not I'm not like RP where it's a pinpoint right. thing, right? Right. I, I've got pretty big field division, so you know I can magnify things, and even though you know it may be x twenty x on my screen, um, uh, I, I'm still able to to you know to function. Um, but you know, I, I mean, I'm I'm adapting, and um, but yeah, and and uh, so uh, you know, when I when I basically had this nervous breakdown, um, it um, um, you know, I, I filed for disability, expecting that I would get denied, um, and. Um, and my employer, I, I you know, I, I, again, you know, kind of leading a blessed life. And, and, and I, you know, like I said, you make your own luck, whatever. But I, I got the claim approved, and the first pass was never, uh, never questioned, and they never once audited me throughout the entire disability. <laughs> while I collected seventy percent of my salary. Right, and 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 <clears throat> did you have a, a pension from the company that that? that also kicked in or, or, or was it just going to be social security? Um, well, while I was working, I, I had, a, you know, I'd accumulated 401k and I right, did have, right. I did have a pension. Um, so, um, more stuff you could draw on. Yeah. Yeah. I, so, so the pension kind of filled in for the 30% that I wasn't making yeah. anymore. It's, it's, it's really interesting because, you guys worked in the in in the private sector and and i worked in the public sector um and and i ended up with with the best of all three worlds because i i accumulated some money in fact the last five years of my salary um that that was mine free gratis and and thank you so much for leaving early um but i but i also I also got a state pension plus my social security. Now, of course, the first time I saw social security was when I was 67. So I, I was never on disability. Right. Um, 
and and never on SSI. Well, I didn't know about SSI when I would have been able to, <laughs> to get on it. Um, but the point I'm making with all of this is one of the questions that I keep asking myself is who is better off? Somebody who works in the private sector or somebody who works in the public sector? Um, it used to be a slam dunk. Everybody said, well, if you know, if you work in the private sector, your pension's going to be better and on, 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 on. But I'm not sure that's true anymore. Well, I, I've got, you know, it, it kind of a, a, I don't know if it's a different spin, but kind of a play on that. You know, the, the, um, um, you know, I, 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 you know, when you like scholarship people that are applying for mm -hmm. scholarships, right. Yep. What I keep hearing over and over and over is the desire to work within the blindness system. Uh huh. And, uh, I, my theory of the 70% unemployment, part of what contributes to that is there aren't enough jobs in the blindness system to, for the population of blind people that are out there. Right. So, so if we want to break through the glass ceiling, I, I think more folks need to seek employment in the private sector. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Um, hmm. I don't think, uh, I don't think nearly enough people apply for jobs in the blindness sector. Um, so, um, you know, we're at opposite ends of the spectrum there. Yeah, um, yeah. Which which is interesting because I think there are a lot of folks who could benefit from working in the blindness system and who could get promoted um, and and could end up making a pretty good salary. Yeah, um, I, I don't doubt that. No, I don't doubt that. You know, one of the, one of the situations in Florida is we have. I I don't think we have a single a single person in the in in the state office in a senior management position who's blind right now um and that's very sad yeah, yes. um so um but uh we got a uh, hand up good let's respond to it uh terry pacheco what a surprise oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah what a surprise 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 you can tell by the tone of my voice I'm yeah really surprised <laughs> I'm astonished. Hey, Terry, you're coming to Boston, huh? I am. Yeah. Or should I say, I am. I, I am. <laughs> you sounded like Taylor the Bankhead just then. My... <laughs> <laughs> I have to get my Boston accent back. Uh -huh. my, family she, she keeps telling me, my family keeps telling me I'm losing it. And I don't think they just mean mentally. <laughs> yeah. Um. Are you she visiting? laughs. She laughs like Jalula too. Yes, she does. Are, 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 you, are you visiting family or what? We're visiting family and friends. You're going to be around Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing we're doing brunch in Watertown Monday morning. Actually, Monday noon. Wow, we're yes. in Watertown. Uh, the diner, you know that diner down the what's it called? The Corner Diner. Yeah, one right there on the square. Yeah, uh, meeting Judy and Larry there Monday. Oh, cool, cool, cool. God, I haven't seen Ju Judy Cannon, right? Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen Judy yes. in a long time. Give, um, give her, yeah. give her a big, give her a big hug. Tell her I a drink. I will do that. I yeah. will do that. Cool, cool. But anyways, um, hi Terry. Hi Terry. How can 
My mother-in-law is 103 and a half on oh this year. Oh, my God. Wow. So we are coming wow. up for Mother's Day. Oh, great. Wow. Wow. Well, I, I think that's, I oh, think that's, that's ter- reasonable. That's, that's terrific. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's it amazing. Is. Wow. They, yeah. grow them, they grow them strong in Fall River. <laughs> <laughs> it's all that logging that goes on. That must be it. Wow. Well, How can we help you, Miss Terry? Anyway, well, what I was, I was fascinated with Rick's story. Um, yeah. Because I had a very similar one when I first went looking for a, a job and got a job at Bank of Boston, just a summer thing. I forget if it was even summer or after school. Uh, and the woman in personnel hired me immediately to be a page. I think I might have still been in high school. I forget now. And but the head of personnel was not was on vacation that week, and so I worked for two weeks. Uh, and when he came back, he found out that I was legally blind. Fired me on the spot. <laughs> and it really, I think it does an awful job on your head. Um, I'm very <laughs> proud of the way you responded to it. Yeah, I, 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 I think it does. Always, yeah, and especially back then, I think there were so many, life was so different. Our, our situations yeah. were so different back then. You know, yeah. back then, at least in Massachusetts, back then, if you could get into a college, it was paid for. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, that's not why, only what, not that's only why was we had so for. many Harvard, that's why we had so many. We had oh, so many yeah. Harvard graduates in those days. I, I mean, books and room and yeah. board, and I mean everything. Yeah. I mean, that's the only yeah. reason why I went to college. But I think it's also, yeah, me too. And I think that, as a matter of fact, at one point, I was going back to get my degree, and I could have gotten back into that, into that part of the rehab program. But the tuition was so low, he said, you'll do better off just to get into the blind and uh pay your own tuition because at that time i was going back going to go back to umass boston right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it was 200 dollars. i think it was 200 a year or 200 a semester <laughs> school. and wow. you know you, you could do better that way i mean it was there was a system that really that worked and it, i think it c- created so many more people who were willing to get into and and had their eyes open to other non-blindness um, positions, not fields. Um, you know, I, most everyone that I ever, that I grew up with, and that I did a sight saving class in grammar school, and um, worked out of it in junior high, and then I went to public high school. And most everyone that I knew growing up through that could in, went into all kinds of fields. You know, one or two went yeah. into. Um, Went into vending. I had one that was one that is a uh, professor at Boston College. Another one was a clinical psychologist. Um, another one was a librarian. You know that kind of thing. That we we all went into different fields. I went into working for the for the state with the uh, public welfare department. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked for them for a number of years after that, and I, I think that it, it, you know I I was thinking that when you were talking about. You ask them for accommodations. I have never, I don't think I have ever in my entire working life, which goes back an awful lot of years. My first full-time job was in 1970. I don't think I've ever asked for an accommodation. No? Um, 
it's you know it's something that I think yeah, today but, it's, it's but you certainly be, you certainly benefit from from using a CCTV, do you not? I do, and I went out and bought it. Yeah, so um, you 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 just I, provided I, I your own it. accommodation. I I, I use yeah. it myself. I never used it. I I don't think I ever used it at work. Really? Um, no, I used I I had gone to a low bit to the low vision one of the two low vision clinics in Massachusetts back in the early 1970s and got a pair of glasses. Did you, you go to Gunderson? And Gunderson, yeah. yeah, yeah. With Jerry Friedman. Oh, Jerry, Jerry, I love Jerry. He was the most um, wonderful guy on earth. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Jerry. Jerry really helped me. Jerry was an amazing guy. You know, he he was Doctor Friedman. I, I, you know, he would remember everything about your life story. Yes, uh, I, he I, and I, I spent much time talking boats because I grew up summers on the Cape, and and was into boat into speedboats and rowboats and nothing big. Um, I think the biggest we ever had was my father. They had a 25 footer toward the end, but, uh, and he was very into boats and we yeah. would spend hours on those. You know, he just, he just remembered everything about it. Oh you. yeah. And he, you know, he kept your file from your entire life. I mean, you know, when I meet with him, he'd have like two feet of paper in front of him, but <laughs> Um, you know, I, I did a lot of traveling in my work and, uh, you know, I'd come in and, and meet with him and he'd be asking me about things I did 15 years ago, you know? Yeah. I think we totals missed that. And, uh, but he was, you know, I mean, one thing that I always found is, um, you know, my general experience with eye doctors or people in the field was that the bedside manner was terrible absolutely atrocious yep jerry was a rare guy you know i i mean he you know he showed a lot of empathy and he really you really understood a lot and you what kind of glasses did you get terry because i bet you I, they were, um microscopic lenses yeah okay a okay. lot of people just call them magnifiers now or something like that yeah yeah, um, yeah. the microscopic lenses and i'm still using i i still use them uh yeah yeah. I have a low vision specialist here in Maryland that I go to now, Dr. Alibi. Yeah, he, um, he got me some lenses that, you know, one thing about my condition is my peripheral vision is better than my central vision, you know, which is part of mm. what gives me the visual field. And it's a little bit scary because I don't see anything center vision, but my brain makes things up, right? Yeah. So, yes. so um you know, and the whole Charles Bonet thing, you know, happens to me all the time where, you know, I see things that I'm not really seeing. Yeah. But, but to this day, I still use those same lenses. And, um, and, uh, you know, I got them from him like 40 years ago for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. But, so, yeah, he was a wonderful guy. So, Terry, I'm going to go, I'm going to go back to your, to your getting fired. Um, Ah, you, yes. you you chose not to do anything about it, or did you feel you couldn't? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think. I was very hurt by it. I know that. Um, and I, I, what I did was I said, "Well, screw you! I'll go find something else." And yeah. I did. I went. I went uh, truthfully. Um, I'm from Massachusetts. I went to my my local state senator. And nice. he referred me to the governor's office 
had a, a, an office for employment and gave me a, a six-week internship with in the state with the Department of Natural Resources. While I was doing that, the uh, civil service exam came up for the state, and I took that, and uh, again, without any, I probably would have done better on it had I had some kind of an accommodation, but I, you know, right, I got 90-something and got the job at the welfare department through that. Then I got, you know, then you get into all kinds of things, but we're not interviewing me tonight. We're interviewing them, so we don't need to yeah. get into all of that. But. But, but, it's, but, it's, but it's interesting because you, too, felt felt like you you needed to take some action um yeah the one time i got fired um which and and it had nothing to do with my performance but the one time i got fired um i simply i i simply took it because my boss who fired me found me my next job (laughs) that's interesting (laughs) That nice. sto- sounds like a story into itself. It does <laughs> because because he knew damn well that I shouldn't have been fired. Yeah. Um, um, well, remember I told you when I you know after I got fired they got me a co op job making an hour about a dollar an hour more. Right? <laughs> I I had contacted the labor department after Mobile fired me and they were all excited about pressing the case against Mobile Oil from the mm-hmm. EOC standpoint. Right. As soon as they found out that I was making more money in my other job, the whole thing fell apart because they said, you know, the guy called me and said, university was very clever because in the eyes of the law, this episode has made you more employable by virtue of the fact that you made more money afterwards. Interesting. Wow. And, and, and wow. that angered me more than anything. It, it's like, oh, my God, you know. Uh, you know, at first I thought it was out of the goodness of their heart that they were getting me this job, right? No, it was done in a very calculated way. And, uh, but anyways. So I'm, so I'm going to ask you two, Larry and, and Rick, and, and, and you, you're <laughs> welcome to chime in if you want, Terry. Both of you stayed in jobs for an immense length of time, over 30 years in, in both your cases. Was there a, ever a point at which you thought, I'm going to get out of this rat race, so I'm going to do something entirely different? And, and, and if so, what did you do about it? I don't think I ever really looked at anything different. I enjoyed what I was doing, and I, made, and I was successful, very successful. I was known as the, God, the rock star of blind people, according to some vice presidents. Uh, and you know, I was I was well known throughout the whole company, mm-hmm. and 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 I actually enjoyed my job. And I, but I knew that eventually I was going to retire. I was supposed to retire in August, but because of COVID, uh, all of a sudden people weren't making reservations, which which didn't have any effect on me because I wasn't on the phones. But I was testing the reservations so that the people could make them. And of course, there was no testing, so there was no need for. So they wanted to put me on the phones again. Well, I hadn't been on the phones in seven years, and I had never been on the phones using the internet web-based version of what we were doing. Right. And so I said, "Look, I'll try it. There are no guarantees. This is a very tough thing you're asking me to do." And 
I tried and I just wasn't terribly successful at it. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go on a leave of absence. And then I told them that. And then I said, you know, it's only about eight to 10 months before I was supposed to retire. And I kept warning them in advance, I'm going to retire in so many years. And of course, they don't say anything. You know, it's not imminent. But then I told them in October, I'm retiring. And all of a sudden, it was like, what are we going to do? And because of COVID, they still haven't hired anybody to take my Believe job. Yeah. Not, and yeah. as a matter of fact, the lady who was in charge of the actual project is doing something else. So they, there are a lot of blind people down now doing their jobs to the best of their abilities, but there haven't been any script loads since COVID. Yet they are continuing to make advances on the web. And so things get changed. And when they get changed, sometimes they get broken. Yep. And I pity those people because... I know they have to be struggling. In fact, in some cases, I found out they were. But for me, it was the time to stop. I was ready to stop. And it wasn't the job. It was just, um, I'm now 66. I wanted to be able to relax and do things that I wanted to do when I wanted to do them. And of course, I'm busier now than I was ever when I was working. With ACB, with CCB, with church, with not barbershopping. We haven't sung in a year. But we will soon and that then will happen. that'll be on Tuesday nights, by the way. So I probably won't be able to be with you. But I told you that before. But no, you're you're breaking my heart. I oh, that's another story. I should have saved it. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I'm I'm so busy now and so enjoying life because I can do what I want to do when I want to do it. If I want to help somebody with something, I can do that. It's great. Mm-hmm. I'm enjoying retirement and I have, yep. you know, money enough so that I can do that because we plan for that ahead of time. Yep. So I'm good. Mr. Mr. Rick, did you ever want to just walk away and do something else? Yeah, it was interesting. I went through a period, period where I was, I had um, really deep depression and, um, and I had convinced myself that I was trapped right? I couldn't mm-hmm. get, get off this treadmill that I was on and, and uh, but the depression was was very very debilitating. So I finally got the depression under control with with meds, and you know all the meds does is just takes the edge off enough edge, yep. where, where you can deal with it, right? So I started going to therapy, and my therapist would always say, you know, it would be an hour session, and we talk for five minutes, and then bullshit for the other fifty five minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in the, fir- in the first five minutes, all he would ever say is. You've got options, figure them out. And when you finally realize you have options, then let's talk about them. So I'd go into a session. Have you figured out your options? No. And then we'd bullshit for 55 minutes. Right? <laughs> One day when I, I had a really clear head, I said, oh, now I know what he means by options. You know, And I remembered back to the days when I worked at McDonald's. And, you know, I, I said to myself, um, I said to Nancy at the time, I said, you know, I always kind of wanted, wanted to own a franchise. So uh, I think I've got enough money saved up where we could probably cobble together some stuff and we could go buy a franchise. And I started and I bought like six or seven books about owning franchises. Mm-hmm. Scared the daylights out of Nancy. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> uh, because she saw our entire life savings go right, mm-hmm. but but then you know so I went in to see the therapist and he said, "Do you have options?" I said, "Yeah." And I told him what they were, and uh, then I started going to work. And you know, like a year later, I 
you know, I, I, I said, what happened here? I, I'm having fun at my old job, you know? So, you know, kind of the psychology of it was I knew I had a way out, right? So I didn't feel trapped anymore, but all of a sudden, you know, the work that I was doing started to be fun again. And, and, uh, and, and, and it, it really has a lot to do with the, the, the fact that you convince yourself that you have choices, that you don't have to be there. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, and in terms of, you know, wanting to go leave and do something else, I used to think from time to time that, you know, uh, you always heard about people leaving and, and making more money someplace else. And I, I, I was convinced that um, I, I, I wasn't willing, even though I, one of the things I always talk to people about is be willing to take risk. Mm-hmm. I, I was never willing to take the risk to leave EDS and go into the open market. Right. Because I, I, you know, I, I, I always felt like um, I would not be treated as well. You know, I felt like I had to put a lot of sweat equity into getting the recognition uh, that I had at EDS. Everybody knew me. They knew what I was all about. I never felt like I would be able to transfer that someplace else. I never felt like I'd be accepted someplace else. I worked uh, for the state of Florida for 36 years um, from 1977 until I retired in 2013. Um, and all of my jobs were with within the state system. Um, and, and, and early on, uh, probably 10 years into it, when, when I had, switched jobs a couple of times within the division of blind services and knew that I could do any job that they had to offer me. Um, I, I thought that I should apply to the private sector. It's a story for another time, but it was an absolutely unsuccessful interview. It was, it was horrible. Um, um, they, they didn't hire me and I wouldn't have worked for them if they'd offered me a job. So uh, it was interesting. The stories and, it, the story is interesting, and one of these one of these weeks, I'll tell you. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. But 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 I but I had a pretty good gig. I mean, I um, I've tried. I, I my philosophy at, at, at work was to do the jobs nobody else wanted. Nobody else wanted to do. And and um, one of the things that people had an aversion to doing was international travel. Believe it or not. Ah, yeah. Uh, nobody wanted to just uproot themselves and go move overseas. Mm-hmm. So I ended up working in 35 different countries over nice. the course of my career. Nice. And, uh, uh, and, and, and really, you know, so much of my perspective on things, you know, is, is so different as a result of that. Sure. Um, so, so anyways, it, uh, I, I think yep. it's interesting too, because I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't get a chance to travel with regard to countries, but I traveled uh, throughout the United States for Marriott. And I love to watch people, even though I can't physically see them. I can tell what they're thinking sometimes just by the way they speak mm-hmm. and the way they talk. And I used to love to go to a different city and just hang out at the hotel or go find something to eat. And I'd walk over to wherever that is or take uh-huh. Uber more recently. And I half the fun was just watching people encountering a blind person. What do they say? Do they say anything? And if they say That's something, true. are they relaxed, or can you tell that they're not sure what to say? And it, this this was always a lovely pastime over the years, just to find out what people thought of a of a blind person 
doing how can he do what he's doing yeah you know it's just a it's and i still do that today yep so terry i don't know if you're still there or if you if if you are was there ever a time you wanted to just walk away from your job and do something entirely different yes there was one um and i had thoroughly enjoyed what pretty much thoroughly enjoyed what i was doing and i got to travel quite a bit and I, like Larry just said, or both of you just said, I used to love going to various cities and meeting with various groups and um, really getting a sense through of, of the differences throughout our country. But most, yep. most of that, all of that travel was within the U.S. And, you know, going to um, Cheyenne, Wyoming, and being invited to someone's house for dinner on Sunday to go to church with them and go to dinner on Sunday morning. And they picking me up in the, uh, in the pickup truck with the kids and like it was something straight out of the Waltons. But Uh on the other (laughs) hand, it really gave you a very different perspective a a very open perspective of the differences in people Uh, working in one of one position I had, I worked in um, out of Lafayette, Louisiana. And I'd go down there five or six times a year. And it was just very different, even just to turn the radio on and get the morning news in the hotel. Just the, the whole perspective in various parts of the country. Very and different. I really did. Yeah, it, it, it is. And it, I think it gives you much more, you know, especially where I live kind of almost inside the Beltway. It's mm-hmm. just a very, very different. There's so much diversity in this world, in this country alone. And um, I really, I, I left that job for a lot of reasons, but um, I really, I didn't really want to leave it, but it was, it was the thing for me to do at that time. Yeah. And, one of my uh, favorite, one of my favorite cities in the world is Prague. And I got to know a, a lawyer there um, who lawyers didn't make much money. She had to be a tour guide to make any kind of money which was kind of weird, wow. but she, uh, uh, you know, she spoke excellent English and she used to tell American, you know, uh, tourists, see these buildings, you know, you guys don't know what history, these buildings are older <laughs> than your, than your country. Exactly. Uh, true. Um, I remember, but I remember that the first time I went to Ireland was that way. Yeah. My grandfather's house, my grandfather, the house, my grandfather was born in was older than in this country yeah mm-hmm. well, one of the things that she said to me at one time and it just really stuck with me um was you know uh when you travel expect everything to be different and you'll be amazed at how much you've got in common with people mm-hmm. yeah i think that there's a lot of truth in that and, i know i i love traveling to the, the countries that I traveled in to, uh, not nearly as many as you did, Rick, but Egypt, Australia, three times, New Zealand once, um, the UK recently, never been to Europe, um, never been to Japan or China. But uh, but it, it, it the perspective is wonderful. Oh, yeah, so, it and, really is. And there's nothing yeah, like so, it. You can read about it, but there's nothing so like it. so is the there. beer. Yes, that's true. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I did a blind taste test in several countries. If you yes, ever, yes. If, you, if you ever want to have fun, back in my drinking days, um, Oktoberfest in Munich is just oh my. that you've got to do. Actually, my brother and I are, are, are thinking of doing that next year, oh. so we'll see. Uh, there's nothing like it in the world. Now, the first time we I ever had, I had beer in Berlin, and I'd heard that it was room temperature there. But mm-hmm. and I experienced, and I thought, you know, this is cool. This is really neat, and it's certainly different. Not anything that we'd, we'd experience here. And I remember the first time I was in Vietnam, and and the company that we were with while we were making the movie, they were German, cameramen mm-hmm. were German, everything, and they're big guys, six two, six three, big big guys. And we came down to breakfast, and we're in Vietnam, and one of the Germans looks at the egg that I have on my plate, and he said. Is that all there is to that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, it was it was so different there because their portions, as you probably know, Rick, are far smaller than what we have here. Oh, yeah. And it's very, oh, yeah. very true. But you have to experience it to really understand it. Yeah. 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 Any other hands, Mr. Rick? No. Nope. All right. So, oh wait a minute! Yeah, there is one. Hold on, let's see here. Oh, Terry put uh, her hand up again. <laughs> the hand thing is acting weird tonight. It says two hands. No, now it's just one hand, and it's Terry. So, I don't know what's going on. It, it said two, but there's no <laughs> so, second okay. one. So, if somebody raised their hand and put it down, raise it again. Get a chance to talk to our celebrities, as it were. Yeah, well, no, wait a minute. here we go. We got somebody. I was going to say, it's interesting. You mentioned celebrities and I'm not certainly a celebrity, but people have told me, do you realize you're a high profile blind person? I said, what, the, what's that? And they said, well, you're known. I said, so, yeah. so my wife was too all over California, but I never experienced it much until when we were doing FS cast. Uh, for Vispero, we did it for a year and a half, right. and we came to our first CCB convention, and this was, I don't know, 2018, 2019, and people said, we kept began to hear people saying, oh my, I know who that is, That those are the guys that do FS cast, and I thought, that must be one heck of a podcast for people to be able to pick us out and and come up and say hello, they must be doing something right, and then I found out later on that they've got... Eight to ten thousand people who listen monthly. Same thing happened at CSUN. So I had no idea what a high-profile blind person is, but I guess they are as such. So, and you probably are in that. You probably fit into that too, Paul, because a lot of people listen to your show. Well, and a lot of people, and and a lot of people knew me because I was president of ACB all over the country. Yep, and um, and also. Because before that, I was chair of resolution, so was always pretty prominent during conventions. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, that's the only reason why I ever won political office in ACB. It didn't didn't have a lot to do with innate quality necessarily. It had far more to do with the fact that that people people saw what I did with resolutions and said, "Well, if he can do that, he can probably he can probably he can probably be a vice president." <laughs> Paul, we have we have Chris Coulter with um, oh from Washington State. Thank you, yeah. Hi, thank Chris. you. Hey, Chris. I'm, 
I'm sorry. I was the one teasing you guys with the hands. I just updated <laughs> and I can't do a thing with the buttons. Oh, <laughs> I just finally found out you have to hear lower hand instead of hand lowered or raise hand. And yeah. it, it never Don't says raise. Don't you love it? And raised. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I want to I want to take you back to when you were talking about uh, growing up blind and um, into college. It it could even go into adulthood. But this is something intriguing that my mother pointed out to me when I was uh, in probably at the time she told me about it. I was at the school for the blind, but she saw it all of our lives in. Tacoma, Washington, in the resource rooms. And that is, she said, you know, when I'm around, when we're around all of you young kids and, and, and then later college students, and we look at you, you look, all of you, like brothers and sisters. Your faces, all of you that are retrolental fibroplasia, you look like brothers and sisters. You look alike. I, I don't know. Uh, we, I kept hearing people mistake me for people, other people that were blind and of course right. angry because I thought, oh, they just, they're not looking at me. And that may be true in some cases. But mom finally told me that. She says, every one of you look alike huh. as if you were brother or sister that's fascinating have you never had that experience well john and i have had that experience but there's a reason for that of course <laughs> but but i have never heard that before that's fascinating either yeah it is fascinating and of course my mother was somebody who was just really observant and artistic huh and she watched. Did she say why? Did she ever tell you why? She didn't know why. She did not know why it was. We we never knew. Huh. Well, but everybody in that resource room, every child in that resource room, and then later on at the school for the blind and into my young adulthood, probably still true, we looked alike <laughs> to her. We, we, well, there, there, there are those who say all blind people look alike. Yeah, that's true. There yep, are those who that's say true. that. I've heard it, that it, before. It, yeah, it, yeah. They, it is actually, in my experience, evidently very true. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I actually know some Chris? people who do yeah. studies on that. I'll, I'll ask them about. They do studies on RLS people, so I will ask. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Chris, I should have asked Ioni Fine, but I did. Yeah, yes. you should have. Yep. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> yep. Um, any other hands, Mr. Rick? Uh, no. Okay. Can I make a, can I make a, bring a follow up a little bit on what Chris just said? Go ahead. And I wonder if part of that is like like you were saying, Chris. So you all went to a resource room together. You were all at the school for the blind together. Um, I wonder how much of it revolves around your similar diets, similar. Um, amounts of exercise those kinds of you know those kinds of things that often happen in a family as well yeah similar hmm. amounts of sunshine actually, actually we were not together at the school for the blind or some of us were but the um 
I I have I have met actually met people who truly did did look like me and um, they weren't it, it wasn't just an all blind people look alike thing so um, but, people who look like you too Chris um not a lot that I know of it's okay. not I'm, I'm I can you know people usually can distinguish but for right. example the singer Diane Schur Evidently, mm -hmm. I look very much like her. A little shorter, mm -hmm. but I look very, evidently look almost exactly like her. And that's different other a, that's people. Not a, that's, you know, that's not a bad thing. No, it's not no, a bad thing. <laughs> and and but the but it intrigues me. Yeah. That the group of us who were in the resource room together, and I think my mother talked about some adults among the blind people we knew who had the same trait and they were all RLF they were all they were all the retrolental fibroplasia interesting kids kids now, and and ones who grew up later and and that yeah no, they, they did, did you guys dress alike no no okay. no we all just as far as I know we didn't dress alike mm -mm. One of the biggest fights my wife and I ever had was the day she said to me, um, the thing I like about you is you don't look blind. Yeah. And I just hit the ceiling. And I wouldn't have. I, I wouldn't have, but I can see where people do because blindness is a part of our lives. No, but to but, me, it, to me, it was know. it was a rejection of the fact that I was that I had the disability, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I never saw it that way, but I can. Yeah, I can yeah. It. So, yeah. so, so, anyways, she, she couldn't win either way, though. No, 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 <laughs> no. Well, you know, I, I, I kind of characterize that as something that's better not left unsaid. But yeah, yeah. It, it, I, yeah. I don't need to hear it, but I don't, I, I. I lived among so many sighted people. I mean, there, um, are, there are a lot of people who will say to me, and I'm sure to Larry as well, mm -hmm. you don't behave like a blind person. Right. Not to, based on their expected stereotypes of what a blind person right. is like. Right. No, if they'd, yeah. no, if they'd said, you don't behave like the blind people I've seen. Right. I've right. met. Well, that's, that's what you they know, that's mean, different. But they generalize. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But they say I mean, you're all one, like that. Yeah. One of the things that sighted people do is they assume if they've met one, met one blind person, they've met them all. I know. I know. And that is something that I'm so different in so many ways from. Uh -huh. you know, most people, actually. I'm, a, well, I'm kind of a rogue that way. But. That's a good thing. Miss yeah. Terry, you were trying to say something. Now, do you sing like Diane Shore too, Chris? No, you can tell you can tell us apart. Um, <laughs> I don't. I sing mostly country, but I Ooh, I, I sing country. a lot of. I do sing jazz sometimes, and and I play piano and that. But no, I'm not. I'm not like my style is not like Diane's. Miss mm -mm. Terry, did you want to say something? No, I just think that it. I I think that that's just an interesting point, and when I think back on people that I've known who were RRLF in the past. And I, I, I can kind of see where, where you're coming from. Um, 
sometimes it was easier for me to d distinguish some people who weren't as opposed who weren't RLF who had other issues mm -hmm. um, you know that I can kind of see what you're talking about and I especially notice it today with younger uh, younger blind people that that primarily have been mainstreamed and such who don't look at all alike you know they're, they're, well, they're yeah well they learn they and they I think learned, a lot of things the other part yeah. of it that I think especially and I'm wondering if it might have this is not something negative toward your mother no. but I'm just wondering especially someone who's artistic is going to look is they're uh, they're drawn more to the eyes uh -huh. and that RLF, may be true. I, people with RLF tend yeah. to have very similar yeah yeah and and but she she uh she did she did talk about the faces looking alike uh -huh. and um but the the um i think too that most of us we didn't dress alike but we we were it, we didn't have our own each our own style right um, mm -hmm. i have developed my own style and my own voice so to speak my own way of moving right later in life but as as a child i mean as children i think maybe we all sort of were a conglomerate that didn't kind of had the same style of speaking the same style of mm -hmm. you know a lot of a lot of blind kids i had a voice teacher and i know he was right about this he said he's he, that's when this is when i started getting into having my own voice and he said you don't have a flat you know the flat voice yes like yeah uh -huh. i and, know what you mean and i and that was when i realized oh maybe i have my own voice uh-huh and and so i have learned over the years to become braver and braver with that but which yeah mm -hmm. which of course is 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 the coolest thing because when um when one recognizes one has one's own voice one has gone a huge distance towards oh. not caring um what other people think very true oh very it's true, true. And it doesn't mean I don't actually care or or want to know about what people think. It's it means that I'm not going to change who I am because of what Perfect. other people think. Yep. It's yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, thank you, uh -huh. Mr. Larry, Mr. Rick. Final comments. You have a minute and a half. I was just um, listening to Chris, and I'll I'll say that we as twins growing up were not dressed alike purposely, and one of the things we had to fight against was that people used to always um, assume that we had we were the same in terms of characteristics, in terms of what we said, how we said it, what we did, and and it took a while to teach people nicely. I hope that we're two individual people with two minds and we thought differently we think differently we react differently john is probably much more he's not introverted but he's not as extroverted as i am but people seem to think that twins are the same and it isn't necessarily so oh you so, can't tell the difference by your voices no i get no no <laughs> mr rick 
you know, I really enjoyed hearing Larry's story tonight. So yeah. thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Um, no, I, I mean, this has been a good discussion, Paul. Thank you very much for uh-huh. the opportunity to do this. <laughs> we, they, this started out, you know, to, to talk about ACB radio. We, we never got we there. Done it. <laughs> That's we haven't done it. It's true. When we do ACB media. Yeah. In, but, the, uh, oh, yeah. in the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to Tuesday Topics. We didn't go in the direction we thought we might, but we went in a direction that I think was fun and appropriate. Good night.